Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. Hello and welcome to this Federal Society webinar. This afternoon, June 8th, 2022, we discussed whether the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, FERC, has authority to regulate the climate. My name is Ryan Lacey and I'm an Assistant Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. As always, please note that all expressions of opinion are those of our experts on today's program. Today, we are fortunate to have an excellent discussion led by Ken Davis, whom I will introduce very briefly. Jay Kinnerly Davis Jr. is a member of the Regulatory Process Working Group of the Regulatory Transparency Project and a member of the Executive, Executive Committee of the Administrative Law and Regulation Practice Group here at the Federalist Society. He has over 40 years of experience in corporate executive management, public service, and the private practice of law, almost all of which has involved some aspect of the continually evolving electric power industry. In 2013 and 14, Davis served as Deputy Attorney General of the Commonwealth of Virginia. After our speakers give their remarks, we will turn to you, the audience, for questions. If you have a question, please enter it into the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen, and we will handle questions as we can towards the end of today's program. With that, thank you for being with us today. Ken, the floor is yours. Thank you, Ryan. Well, as the title suggests, um, we have a very important program today covering the question, trying to help you understand the significance of the question and answers to the question of whether the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission in fact has authority, statutory authority to regulate the climate. Now, climate change, of course, is a all-encompassing significant issue uh, that ranges across the political landscape. The Biden administration, for one, has pledged to meet what it calls the accelerating threat of climate change with a wide-ranging campaign to discourage the production and use of fossil fuels in order to control the emission of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases said to be the principal cause of adverse global warming. The White House has directed regulatory agencies and departments all across the executive branch to do what they say, tackle, as they say, tackle the climate crisis. The administration has in fact, as a part of this goal, set a goal to eliminate carbon dioxide emissions from the electric power sector by 2035. Part of the, an important part, critically important part of the uh, agency and departmental landscape in Washington is the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission or FERC. FERC is an independent regulatory agency whose enabling statutes include the Federal Power Act and the Natural Gas Act. FERC's statutory responsibilities include regulation of the transmission and wholesale sale of electricity and interstate commerce and authorization of proposals for the construction and operation of interstate natural gas pipelines. 
doing its part to tackle the climate crisis. FERC in the last several months has proposed uh, new positions, new policy initiatives that will greatly expand the scope of its climate related activities, both as to the regulation of the wholesale interstate electric system and the interstate natural gas pipeline system. The question before us in the program is whether FERC has this legal authority to implement the um, particular steps and changes involved in its tackling of the climate crisis. To explore this important topic and all the related issues, we are extremely important. Um, as we look at this thing, we are extremely fortunate to have with us this afternoon, Bernard McNamee, former commissioner uh, at FERC and currently a partner at McGuire Woods Law Firm and senior advisor at McGuire Woods Consultant. Uh, Commissioner McNamee's practice includes providing clients with legal and strategic and policy advice across a whole range of uh, energy and environmental issues. During his time at the commission, uh, Commissioner McNamee participated in more than 1,700 published orders on a wide range of issues, including numerous consequential, extremely important orders relating to wholesale electricity markets and natural gas pipelines. Before his appointment by the president and confirmation by the Senate to be a commissioner on FERC, uh, McNamee served as a policy advisor and senior attorney in the Department of Energy. He's deputy general counsel for energy policy. But even beyond that, Commissioner McNamee's career in public service includes leadership positions under attorneys general in Virginia and Texas, and an important policy advisor roles for a US Senator in Texas and a governor of Virginia. And in private practice, he has a long career representing energy clients before state utility commissions in a variety of important proceedings. Commissioner McNamee, we are extremely extremely fortunate to have you with us this afternoon. Well, thank you so much, Ken. And, and obviously call me Bernie. As, as you know, we've been friends for many years and I've always looked to you for guidance and uh, I've always uh, known you as a leader in the energy area. So it's, uh, it's great to be sharing this with you and to be joining the Federalist Society and its members to talk about these important energy issues. I, I have to give the standard disclaimer that the the views I express are my own. They're not of views of the firm or of uh, any of the firm's clients or my clients. And uh, I'm looking forward to this discussion. Great. Well, Bernie, it is, and, and certainly uh, Ken. Um, well, let's look first at the gas sector. Now, anyone proposing to construct and operate pipeline facilities for the transportation and wholesale sale of gas and interstate commerce must first obtain approval 
from FERC, authorization in the form of a uh, what's called a certificate of public convenience and necessity. Now, when acting on applications for those certificates, what are the statutory obligations of the commission? Well, when the when Congress passed the Natural Gas Act in 1938 and a variety of amendments since then, the Congress stated in in actually Section One, referencing a, a uh, referencing a study done by Congress, that really its purpose is to ensure that the American people have access to affordable and reliable natural gas and to prevent monopolistic uh, pricing. If you recall, you know, during the era in which uh, natural gas pipelines were being developed and in which uh, utility regulation was beginning, it was the era in which that we that there was a recognition that uh, certain utilities were providing a public service, that there could be tendencies, monopolistic uh, tendencies that could either restrict access to natural gas, and that you wanted to prevent the duplication of natural gas pipelines, and you wanted to make sure that people had access to the resource. And so the Natural Gas Act provided what was then the Federal Power Commission with the authority to consider applications for the siting and permitting for the operation construction of natural gas pipelines. And for, you know, 70, 80 years, that process has worked in order to build out our natural gas pipeline system to ensure that people had access to natural gas. And, you know, during the times, there's been a variety of deregulatory processes. When the Natural Gas Act was originally enacted, Congress actually gave the Federal Power Commission and uh, some related commissions that became the Department of Energy, the authority to actually regulate the, the sale of the natural gas commodity. And over time, particularly during, towards the end of the energy crisis in the 70s uh, with the Natural Gas Policy Act, Congress actually, in the Wellhead Decontrol Act in, 19, in the 1980s, actually stripped FERC from the authority to regulate the commodity. And that's gonna become very important in our discussion uh, today about why FERC doesn't have the authority to regulate greenhouse gas emissions from upstream or downstream use of natural gas. Well, you um, you refer uh, to the purpose, the fundamental statutory purpose of the Natural Gas Act as, as, as to ensure that uh, the American people have adequate access to reasonably priced natural gas, that we have access to reasonably priced natural gas. Um, now, I think, and we're sure to come back to that, but I think the purpose of the statute helps people, I think, understand the appropriate and inappropriate uh, interpretation of some of the uh, details um, in, within the statute, some of the detailed provisions that are um, so frequently debated now. But um, there has, in fact, been increasing debate about what sort of factors FERC can and should consider in determining whether a project is um, required for the public convenience and necessity. And also, whether the environmental effects of the upstream production 
and downstream use of natural gas are indirect effects of the construction and operation of the project that need to be evaluated as a part of um, as a part of uh, FERC's consideration of the application for certification. So environmentalists certainly want the certification process to be as broadly defined as possible to consider greenhouse gas emissions from the facility and also the upstream production and the downstream use. Um, and if I understand the recent news reports correctly, FERC, in fact, this spring has proposed a policy that, um, uh, that will result in them doing this, that is including an evaluation of the climate impact of upstream production and downstream use of the natural gas that's being transported as a part of the consideration of the uh, project and, and whether it does in fact meet public convenience and necessity without undue adverse effects. Now, would how does this upstream downstream scope of analysis um, this is new, isn't it? And 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 how is this different from the kind of environmental impact um, that the commission has considered for the project when it gets a certification application? Well, I think it's helpful to kind of uh, start with the, the Natural Gas Act itself and then talk about some aspects of it and then also the role of NEPA and the courts and how we're getting to what FERC has recently done. You know, the Natural Gas Act, when you certificate a, get a certificate of public convenience and necessity to build a pipeline, you go through a long process at FERC pursuant to Section 7 of the Natural Gas Act in which you go through a process where you explain where you're going to site the project, how you're going to acquire land, who's going to use the gas, is there a demand for the gas, and you're basically establishing ultimately that there is a need for the for natural gas and that the pipeline is needed to deliver it. There is another part of the Natural Gas Act, Section 1, that basically de declares Congress's perspective that uh, providing natural gas services in the public interest. Now, what's happened is there's been a use of the phrase public interest that used in Section 1, and it's been twisted to, in my opinion, by a number of people to expand beyond what it means, which is the public interest is, is for the access to natural gas. And it's being used to, as an interpretation in a statutory basis to say, well, public interest is much broader than the need for the gas. We need to look at all factors in the public interest. And of course, there were Supreme Court cases on the Natural Gas Act that talked about broad public interest factors, but they were always tied to whether there was a need for the natural gas and what was the impact of the actual natural gas pipeline. And what's been happening is it's been, um, there's been arguments made that, well, public interest actually is something much broader and that we can interpret the Natural Gas Act from 1938 to now en encompass climate change and that, the, uh, and that FERC ought to consider climate change issues from a natural gas pipeline, including the gas that would, be, uh, that would be produced and that would facilitate its production and its end use. And so part of that has been driven also by NEPA. 
the National uh, Environmental Policy Act, which requires federal agencies to consider uh, the environmental impacts of their major federal actions and significant federal actions. And all these things are getting, getting jumbled together um, to, along with a, uh, a decision by the DC circuit called Sable Trail, to basically say that because um, it is reasonably foreseeable that if you burn natural gas, that's gonna emit natural uh, greenhouse gases, therefore, it is uh, foreseeable for the purposes of NEPA, which therefore means that FERC should be considering it as part of its uh, analysis and whether or not to grant a, uh, a certificate to build a pipeline. There is significant argument about whether or not that is a correct interpretation, um, both of Sable Trail, but also uh, whether a determination in NEPA, which is a procedural statute, can be used to change the Organic Act which is the Natural Gas Act and expand its purpose. So all this has come together in FERC, um, issuing in February what's called a certificate policy statement. FERC has issued over time, including most recently in 1999, what's called a certificate policy statement saying how it'll look at issues as it considers natural gas pipelines. And those issues will consider um, a variety of things, you know, impact on land users, uh, noise issues, environmental justice issues, and environmental issues in general. But um, one of the key things to that is, is the difference between looking at the impact of the natural gas pipeline itself, the emissions that will occur from leakage from the pipe. There's things called compressor stations, which also emit uh, greenhouse gases among um, among other emissions. Those are all properly within the scope of a review by FERC under NEPA and under the NGA about the impacts of the natural gas pipeline, because it's it's related to the pipeline itself, not to the commodity that's being used on that pipeline that FERC has no actual jurisdiction over. Think about it, you know, the production of natural gas, the states regulate along with EPA emissions for the production of natural gas at the wellhead. For the combustion of natural gas, local distribution companies that serve your heating and your stoves, they're regulated by the state level about whether they can even provide that service and emissions are also regulated there. For power plants that use natural gas, they need to get, they need to get permits for their air emissions. So what FERC has done is, is started to insert itself into making decisions about whether or not, uh, regardless of whether there's a demand for the natural gas, they're going to be. They're proposing to this federal this uh, these policy statements. I'll go into a little more detail in a moment. They're going to be de making decisions about well, even if the gas is needed, we think the impact of that gas is going to be so harmful to the environment and to climate change that we're going to deny people access to the natural gas. And so, um, FERC in February issued new policies proposed. Well, at the time they were new. Uh, interim policy statements effective immediately, even depending projects and how they would analyze greenhouse gases and how that they would uh, determine whether to approve a uh, natural gas pipeline, including how they would review demand uh, and need for that. There was a huge outpouring and outcry about this, including from many in Congress, uh, including Chairman Manchin of the Senate Energy and Natural Resource Commission, uh, committee, which unprecedentedly within two weeks of FERC on a 3-2 vote issuing the uh, interim policy statements were called before 
the Senate grilled pretty pretty hard, and by the next meeting of FERC, uh, they made the they suspended the policy the new policy statements, made them draft, and asked for uh, for comments be filed by stakeholders. And those comments and reply comments uh, have all been filed, and now FERC is considering them. But the end point of this is is that it clearly looks like FERC is looking to um, to expand its jurisdiction to deny access to natural gas, even if it's needed, based on their determination that the greenhouse gas emissions will be too harmful to the environment. Well, the, um, the, uh, the general invocation of the concept public interest and, and all the uh, assertions and uh, position statements that uh, it must be obvious to any reasonable person that it's in the public interest to prevent climate disaster by addressing climate change, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, the, surely the statutory text of the Natural Gas Act um, doesn't provide FERC authority to address anything that it conceives to be in the public interest, the purpose of the statute bounds the activity of the commission and the statutory text describing its authority. Isn't that right? I mean, it's it's not just anything that, that's conceivably in the public interest. It, you're absolutely right. And, and that's where I think a textual approach demonstrates the, its purpose. Congress specifically said it's what its purpose is, it's to provide access to, to reasonable, affordable natural gas and prevent monopolistic pricing. And that's what it's meaning by, and that's in its public interest section, the section one. And the, here's what the twist is happening. The, the act itself and what a certificate of public convenience and necessity means helps inform what public interest is. But it's being twisted to say that public interest is a very broad word, and therefore that informs what the public convenience necessity is. And that's just not a way that you can accurately read the statute, both from an originalist approach, a textualist approach, or even if you wanted to take a look at legislative history, that's not that's not what its purpose is. And I think what the, the fundamental issue is, and, and the Supreme Court has been clear about this, in, in other cases is that is that when there's there's broad areas of when a statute doesn't address a broad change in public policy of grant great economic significance you can't read it into the statute especially an administrative agency like FERC um, you know Justice Scalia I think famously said that you know Congress doesn't hide elephants in mouse holes and so climate change um, you know, is an issue that a lot of people are concerned about, various people in Congress. But as I've pointed out, you know, there's for over 15 years, Congress had submitted over 70 bills to try and address climate change, and they haven't been able to agree anything. So for FERC to suddenly determine, you know what, Congress has failed to do anything, but we've suddenly discovered we have the authority to address climate change through our, um, through our, you know, our 70, 80 year old statutes just doesn't seem seem possible and doesn't seem like a legitimate reading of 
of the law. And it also is, I would argue, a threat to the rule of law, because then it's just whatever, you know, a majority on FERC thinks ought to be the policy. And that's just not how our system is supposed to work. If Congress wants FERC to address climate change, they can they can amend the Natural Gas Act. Right. I, I think as um, Justice Gorsuch uh, observed in a, a case involving another subject, um, the need for Congress to address a lack of uh, uh, a possible lack of statutory authorities in the legislative process, and that's not a flaw in the system. That's a key, essential part of the system. Now, you mentioned a minute ago that under NEPA, um, FERC is required to address um, reasonably foreseeable impact of the project if I if I if I'm following that correctly. Now if the impact is the impact of concern is climate change, adverse climate change, it seems that there are a lot of steps, a lot of analytical steps that have to be taken to get from the application filed by one particular pipeline project and to determine that that one project has an adverse effect on global warming. And to make that determination, to have the analytical tools and information, um, to make that determination, you have to look at each one of the steps. And if the methodology doesn't exist and or the data doesn't exist, then um, it's, it's hard for me to see how the commission could um, possibly have a responsibility to um, make, try to make studies and so forth as to the climate impact of one particular project. I mean, yeah, there, there are certain methodologies around like the methodology to calculate social cost of carbon, but the methodologies that do exist are, are uh, the subject of uh, much continuing unresolved debate. And um, again, those, those social cost of carbon climate change models are macro. They don't provide a link from one project to the climate. Now, is, is that a problem for, for people who say the commission, uh, the commission should do this and they have the tools? Yeah, I, it is. They, as you point out, the, there is no direct link that that can be demonstrated for each molecule of greenhouse gas, CO2 that's emitted with the actual climate impact. So that's the first problem. Um, so it's from an actual direct causation standpoint, it's very hard to do that. And there's no demonstrated methodology to to show that. That's why social cost of carbon has been developed. It's trying to come up with an idea of, well, how can you measure something? But, you know, social cost of carbon is made up of three complex models that, you know, vary dramatically in how they, they calculate impacts. And it's really an economic model. And so even that's based on a lot of assumptions. And, you know, it's very difficult. And regardless of whether the Intergovernmental Climate Panel comes up with a uh, 
a uh, you know the working group comes up with the social cost of carbon there's still significant questions to it but the the bigger question is a legal one you know well i'll i'll, I'll continue at least one thing is that FERC is not an economic is not an environmental regulator it's an economic regulator so it doesn't have the expertise to figure out these climate models to to establish what is too much greenhouse gas what's significant and yet FERC seems to be, uh, at least in these draft policy statements, has been trying to assert that they can determine what's significant and that they can make judgments about what is too significant, what's too harmful to the environment. Whereas, you know, Congress designated EPA as the environmental regulator along with the states and the Clean Air Act as the, as the primary vehicle in which to make these determinations. So you have uh, an issue, one of FERC not having the statutory authority or the expertise to do these things. You have another agency that Congress has designated to take the lead on this. And it would seem to make sense that if any action was gonna be taken that you'd wait for EPA to do that and see how FERC can implement that. But there's also another legal issue that we need to address is that, you know, NEPA and the case law with it, you have to be the legally relevant cause of, of whatever the environmental impact is. And as the 11th Circuit had pointed out in a case called biodiversity, the Sable Trail case that FERC has been hanging its hat on for why it now has the authority to regulate greenhouse gases upstream and downstream was an outlier. FERC is not the legally relevant cause of the gas being burned. The pipeline, it only regulates whether the pipeline is, is to be approved, but the demand for the gas is being driven by industry or by a certificate granted by a state, uh, state public utility commission. The wellhead is being driven by demand and its emissions are being regulated by the state or by uh, EPA jointly. And so merely approving the pipeline is facilitating exactly what, the, what Congress wanted in the Natural Gas Act facilitate access to natural gas. And so from a legal perspective, FERC is not the legally relevant cause of the greenhouse gas emissions. It's the actual use of the gas. And what we've had is kind of a twisting of, well, because you couldn't get the gas without the pipeline, therefore you're the, the cause, the foreseeable cause, kind of, you know, a pulse graph sort of way of, of what's happening. But that's not how NEPA and the Natural Gas Act are supposed to be working together. And so, you know, this is one of the 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 problems that I see about the way FERC's pursuing this. Um, you know, above and beyond the very practical problems that you point out, which is that there's really no. Um, you know, there's a general sense that you know that, that uh, greenhouse gases, hence its name, can affect can affect the climate, but making a direct correlation between every molecule and every impact is very hard. And um, that that becomes, I think, a real problem uh, for FERC in, in making a determination that an actual demonstrated need for natural gas to either provide electric power, to provide electric heat to people, and uh, to pr promote economic development is offset by the Indirect, kind of these indirect, uh, very amorphous ideas of how greenhouse gases impact on a global level, impact the, the climate. Well, as you mentioned, the um, production facilities and the use facilities like a gas-fired electric power plant 
they're all themselves, each of them regulated. Their emissions and impact is assessed as a part of their permitting process. And so for FERC to also assess, try to assess, try to evaluate and count the uh, emissions impact from a power plant, that seems like the, those emissions and ever, as well as the emissions of the production are gonna be double counted. Um, and uh, that is perhaps what some would like, but uh, again, you point out there uh, significant statutory issues as, as well as uh, methodological, technological, practical issues. Now, you refer to um, court cases and uh, some have provided some support for the environmentalist position uh, in the in the DC circuit. Maybe some haven't. Uh, is there any uh, pending case um, that's in the system anywhere that's uh, uh, likely or has even some potential to resolve the uh, scope of the, the, the question about uh, the scope of FERC's authority under the Natural Gas Act? Anything uh, headed up? Uh, nothing comes to mind, but that doesn't mean that there's not. I just haven't looked lately. I think, though, you know, one thing that's been the big debate, and I think uh, really is is the, the the fulcrum of all this is what is the meaning of Sable Trail, which is kind of the the this was a case in which a uh, FERC had granted a natural gas pipeline uh, to serve a an electric generation facility. And um, it didn't calculate the greenhouse gases from that facility, and therefore it was told it had to, to relook at it and recalculate and consider those greenhouse gases. And there was some language saying that because it has, uh, it, it was a case really about what does NEPA mean, but because it had a, a line in there saying that because FERC could deny a pipeline um, due to greenhouse gas emissions, that Therefore, it is it is a cause that can be considered under NEPA. So if you already see the trick there, it really wasn't an analysis of what does the Natural Gas Act allow them to make a decision. It was kind of trying to figure out what does NEPA allow for at least the consideration or the calculation. And then that premise became interpreted as a holding. And that, that was a real problem. And that's created, I think, a lot of havoc. And so the, 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 the big fight is really going to be about what what does NEPA require? And if NEPA requires you to calculate, which there's a number of DC circuit cases to say that FERC is now required to calculate the downstream greenhouse gas emissions, what is FERC obligated to, to do with that information? And so far, uh, the courts have said all they're required to do is calculate the downstream emissions. It doesn't say what they have to do with the information. But I think that's going to be the next big fight. And these are fights that are also going to be going on with, uh, to a certain extent, with uh, with the LNG export facilities. Um, you know, even though there's DC Circuit law about how FERC uh, is not the relevant cause of the burning of the gas uh, used by LNG exports, uh, there are still issues about the the emissions that occur from the LNG facilities themselves. Yeah. Well. Um, calculating the emissions from a gas pipeline 
um, is and and or taking the position that those emissions are foreseeable and can be calculated. Um, that's not the the foreseeable event or foreseeable effect that that that's the key issue, is it? I mean, because it's climate change. I mean, calculating the emissions still leaves the gap, the methodological gap um, uh, between the emissions and whether those emissions um, are any kind of uh, climate negative or climate positive. They might be positive if they're replacing coal, uh, for example. Um, well, what's the status then? You, you, you said that uh, the comment period on the proposed for policy is closed. Uh, are they under any kind of time limit to uh, um, respond to the comments and come to a final position or, or not? They're not. They're currently still operating under the 1999 policy statement, um, which doesn't have this. You know, they're You've seen in, in some of the orders that they've issued since they've paused the uh, policy statements where uh, there's, multi, there's there's technically a majority order and then there's a bunch of concurrences uh, or dissents, um, you know, basically saying, uh, well, the greenhouse gases aren't that significant, so this isn't a problem or that the need is overcoming any of the impacts. And so I it looks like they're trying to get some orders out to keep things moving and to, to not fully address the issue um, until they're able to issue a new policy statement. Of course, I think, um, you know, besides the, the sheer volume of comments that have been filed, obviously we're seeing um, some big problems. You know, there was part of the challenge when they issued these policy statements, they were issued a week before Putin in invaded the Ukraine. And so um, the timing was particularly bad uh, with world events. Of course, natural gas prices have been uh, skyrocketing, which uh, means that, you know, having more access to natural gas is going to be important. We're also seeing, um, we're seeing reports from reliability entities such as NERC and from various RTOs uh, that regulate uh, the electric markets that there's worries about uh, blackouts coming this summer and this winter. Uh, of course, New England's always constrained for having enough natural gas and, and you can't build a pipeline through New York. And even if you could get it through New York, uh, most of New England doesn't want a new natural gas pipeline. And so there's, uh, really kind of a big problem coming ahead where there's not going to be enough pipelines to support the demand for electricity, especially as you need more natural gas to generate electricity with the shutdown of coal, with rising uh, intermittent renewables that need gas to keep the grid operating when the wind's not blowing and the sun's not shining. So, uh, you know, everybody's, I think, has seen the energy crisis at the gas pump. But what we're seeing is we're going to we're going to have a severe electricity crunch across this nation in the summer and this winter and it's it's going to be a big problem a dose of reality let's turn to electricity um, in the electric sector um, the federal power act gives uh, FERC uh, exclusive jurisdiction over the transmission of electric energy and interstate commerce and the sale of such energy at wholesale. 
uh, in interstate commerce within that defined jurisdiction, statutory jurisdiction, I think Section 201 of the Federal Power Act. What are the responsibilities of FERC regarding that those wholesale transactions? Well, I think, um, you know, it's helpful to, to recognize that, you know, the electricity that we ultimately receive, you know, out of our sockets really is you can put in three different buckets. You have the generation of electricity, which are power plants, which are, involves wholesale sales of that electricity. You have transmission, the big transmission lines that you see, and then you have the distribution system. And the jurisdiction over those is 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 separate, but I'm going to give even a little more detail, a little bit of history about the development of, of electric, so-called electric markets. Um, you know, when, before really the end of the 1990s, early 2000s, we all had what we remember as, you know, our, our electric utility. It would, uh, it was the utility would um, build the power plants, build the transmission lines, and uh, sell us the electricity and deliver it into our home. And um, it was really all together. FERC would would regulate uh, the the rates for the sale of of wholesale generation of of electricity uh, between entities uh, and certain transmission rates. but but FERC's role was somewhat more limited. But then we had um, the idea of developing, um, more competition for um, for the generation of electricity and, and transmission. And one thing that's important, FERC does not have jurisdiction over where a power plant gets sited and who decides to build a power plant. Same with the transmission. They're only dealing with the financial transaction of the sale of the electricity and the transmission of the electricity. But we kind of got in this, this uh, somewhat of a fiction of creating open access to transmission, meaning we wanted more competition and in, in independent power producers versus your traditional utility to be able to build a power plant and, and sell the electricity. And then we started, we created what are called electric markets. And I actually don't think that's a proper name. It's more of a regulatory construct. And, um, but when they were developed, um, the idea was every electron is fungible, meaning you could dispatch it, you burn something, you burn coal, you burn gas, you, you ran hydro or you had nuclear. And an inherent aspect of that is you had reliability. And as everybody knows, you know, at night, not, not as many people are using electricity, but as people wake up, they turn on their appliances, it gets hot, they turn on the AC. And so the load curve looks much like a sine wave during the day. And so the same for during the during winter versus summer sometimes. So what you would do is you would, you created a market where people would bid in to serve that load and you'd get the most efficient resource to do it. And it seemed to work generally, there were some issues with it, um, but you had marginal pricing, meaning that the last resource bid in set the price that everybody was paid. Well, we started then having concerns about climate change and we'd have these renewable portfolio standards and we'd start having mandates and tax credits and everything else for uh, preferred resources like wind and solar. And they started um, doing two things. One, they had some financial benefit. They were uh, driving down the marginal price of energy, which was helpful to, to an extent, but they were intermittent. So 
sometimes when you needed the energy, they weren't available. At the end of the day, 4.30 in the afternoon, when the sun's going down, you suddenly need a lot of energy. That's so-called duck curve out in California coming the rest of the country. And so you start having resources like coal and nuclear going out of business and not enough other resources available to serve load. And so we're having reliability problems. Well, FERC's role is to regulate those RTOs, those regional transmission organizations, independent system operators that operate in large swaths of the country, but not in areas like the, the Southeast and part of the Northwest. And um, what's happened is these, these RTOs that FERC regulates become barnacled with tariffs, regulations, and there's been constant fights about how are we gonna have just and reasonable rates? How are we gonna accommodate uh, 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 subsidized state resources? And how are we gonna keep reliability going? And as, as we've gone on, reliability is becoming more and more a problem for uh, for these electric markets. And as, as, as we've seen in California in August of 2020, uh, in ERCOT, in uh, the winter storm in 2021, even though they're not regulated by FERC, uh, we've seen reliability has become a real problem. And, and now we're hearing that um, according to, to the reliability uh, entity NERC, that it's gonna be a big problem for large swaths of the, the country this summer and then also into the winter. FERC has responsibility under the Power Act um, for reliability or to participate in the reliability assurance process, doesn't it? I mean, it works with NERC or could, could you briefly describe that? Sure. Um, <clears throat> Congress, it used to be that um, NERC was uh, an entity sponsored by the electric industry, but not uh, really a government designated to try and provide, to help the industry um, provide for reliability. Congress required FERC to designate a reliability organization. Uh, NERC is it. And so NERC works to develop reliability standards that FERC then uh, will enact as a regulation and there are penalties for, for failure, but it's still a kind of an indirect uh, requirement. You know, they have cybersecurity standards, they they have projections for, for reliability requirements, but FERC does not have the authority to require certain sort of resources to be developed. It doesn't have the, uh, the authority to designate except as backstop authority with the Department of Energy for certain transmission uh, to be developed. So reliability is, is where it used to be, you had state utilities that were responsible, their public utility commission, they do integrated resource planning and they explain, this is how we're gonna keep the lights on. And they were accountable. Now, particularly with these RTOs, nobody's really accountable for keeping the lights on. We're hoping that, that market forces work, but we're seeing more and more that, um, that when you start having you start interfering with supply, demand, and price through subsidized resources, reliability starts to decline. So NERC's trying, FERC has its eye on it, but I'm I'm worried. Yes. Um, well, looking, looking at FERC's core responsibility in the electric sector under Section 205, you look at these markets or constructs that have been developed, um, often referred to as wholesale, markets. Um, what's the uh, statutory responsibility of FERC regarding the prices 
um, for the wholesale prices for electricity and the related services. Well, it used to be before these uh, markets were created that that uh, it was traditional regulation cost of service where you'd have basically you have to demonstrate what your costs were and the utility under uh, Supreme Court precedent like like uh, Hope Hope uh, in Bluefield that, you know, they'd get a uh, an authorized rate of return, you know, mimicking supposedly what the market would produce. Well, the theory under the RTO was that competition would inherently set just and reasonable rates, the term of art, and rates that are not, not unduly discriminatory. And the um, the theory theory was, and you know, arguably, um, when when these wholesale markets were established, you would have supply, demand, and price would 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 all come together and create an equilibrium that established a quote unquote just and reasonable price. So it was kind of an indirect regulation of 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 both the the tariff and rates by which service would be provided and the price paid for for, for that service. Um, but the there's constant intervention by FERC to require, you know, under the theory that, oh, something is creating a barrier to new types of resources. So they have to modify their tariff in order to, to, to let some new resource have access to the market. And then there's, well, the market, there's other pushes like, well, the market's not producing rates sufficient to, uh, to cover the, the cost for resources needed for reliability. Hence, the original creation of capacity markets, you know, there's energy and capacity markets and then there's ancillary markets. There's, you know, constant building of like, well, how are we going to solve this problems? And we need to use a quote unquote market solution. So we'll create a new product in these markets that people can compete to serve. And it just keeps on building and building. And the question is, are we actually producing, uh, the resources we need for reliability. And second, if we keep on adding all these new products and resources, are we actually producing a, a system, especially with marginal pricing, that's actually benefiting customers and providing the lowest cost service that they can get for their, for their energy? Well, um, the subsidies for renewable resources, solar, wind, that sort of thing, that the environmentalists call for, um, those um, subsidies uh, seem that they may, under the general requirement that the prices produced by the markets be just and reasonable and not unduly discriminatory. Um, I mean, subsidies are, by their nature, discriminatory. In this case, in favor of the renewables at the expense of the all the other sellers uh, in in the market, so that seems like an uh, like a potential issue. And the the rules and there's you and I know they're so complex. Uh, the market rules were constructed initially with a certain kind of system and a certain kind of um, producer and uh, transmission technology uh, in mind. That is a dispatchable, a synchronous generator um, into a transmission system 
that provided for the dispatch, the control of those um, synchronous generators, fossil fired or nuclear, to meet the sine wave of the load and follow the load through the day. And, and so when the advocates, investors, and proponents of these new technologies look at this system of, of, of traditional rules, um, and they say, oh, this is a barrier, that's a barrier, we need to change this so that I can deploy my new technology. I mean, that may be fine, but um, I think people, we must not lose sight of the fact that you have uh, in the electric system uh, an instantaneously balanced um, system that can easily lose that stable balance and collapse and go black um, if if you know this kind of rule is tweaked or that kind of of uh, production asset is is uh, allowed to take up x percent of the supply curve and and so there are a lot of issues a lot of issues that have to be resolved and many more issues than we have time. We've got a little bit of time left. And, and so um, let's ask uh, Ryan if we have any questions pending from the audience. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Ken. And to start things off, uh, first of all, everyone, if you have questions, please put them in the Q&A feature in the bottom of the screen. We already have a few, but I'd like to give people a chance to put more in if they have them. I'll start off with a question of my own, uh, Bernie. Uh, how do you think with this announcement, it came very soon, either after or before the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine? Um, and with the energy implications of that, Russia being a huge exporter of energy, of course, how has FERC, how has this, that invasion affected this policy? Well, I think it, there was, the invasion had a huge impact. The, the uh, FERC issued on the Thursday before the invasion, I think it was the next Monday or Tuesday. Mm -hmm. So just a few days before the invasion, they had issued this, this interim policy statement and the the timing couldn't have been worse because there was a recognition of the need for natural gas and the need also to, to export natural gas. You know, one thing that I was most proud of when I was on FERC, when I got there for two years, no LNG export facility had been approved. And I was able to work with one of my Democrat colleagues and the chairman to get a compromise. And we got 14 LNG export projects approved in a little over 12 months. And one of them's already come online and it's been making a huge difference in helping fill the gap for Europe of the lack of natural gas that uh, has come from, from uh, you know, having to cut off the Russian natural gas. Understood. And moving on to audience questions. First one's from Gerard Sullivan. Um, as citizens and taxpayers lack standing to challenge, FERC, challenge FERC's exercise of authority beyond its enabling acts, who does have standing? Do those who have standing have an interest in challenging expansion of FERC's aggrandizement in this role? Uh, great question. Um, there's a couple points with that. One, um, number of trade associations tend to participate in in these uh, INGA, which represents the natural gas pipelines. On the other side, uh, the Natural Resource Defense Fund or Council, um, NRDC, EDF, um, 
Public Citizen, there's a number of environmental groups. Congress also uh, funded what's called the Office of Public Participation, which is going to help uh, individuals participate in FERC proceedings. And I think that there's opportunities not just for uh, opponents of projects participate, but proponents. But standing is always going to be a challenge. Um, you know, at least at, in FERC proceedings, though, there needs to be um, you need to show show an interest, at least for rulemakings in particular. Um, you don't have to have Article Three standing. Of course, if you're going to go into a court, you do. So, uh, you know, the best thing though is to, to get folks to be active and and participate as, as much as they can, even if it's just filing comments. Next question is from uh, Maya Weber. How does your interpretation square with some of the recent holdings of the DC Circuit in FERC certificate policy challenges? Well, Maya, I appreciate the question. Um, th there's a real big distinction between the way cases like Sable Trail and Lori Burkhead and others have been def uh, described as saying that FERC has the authority to deny a pipeline based on its downstream uh, GHGs versus what they actually said, particularly Sable Trail and, and as clarified by uh, by uh, the the other the other cases, including that most recent one, Water Watch, I think it was, in that it's that it's they're all NEPA cases. It's saying that FERC has to calculate the downstream gases. Doesn't say that it has the authority to deny a pipeline because of it, and that that one line in Sable Trail was merely a statement and dicta to set up for why there's authority under NEPA, but it really isn't a holding that gives FERC the authority. All right, and we have time for about one, maybe two more questions. This one from John Melko. If FERC is found not to have jurisdiction to analyze environmental factors, does that make the pipelines and transmission lines subject to the tender mercies of the EPA? If so, how do you, how do you reconcile the obligation to provide power with EPA's current objectives? Well, I guess um, the two issues. One, FERC does have the authority and should consider the environmental impacts of the pipeline itself, but not the upstream or downstream uh, greenhouse gas emissions, or at least that's my reading of the law. And um, subjecting it to the authority of EPA, whether or not you like what EPA does or what it comes up with, that's the entity that Congress designated to regulate emissions along with the states. And um, you know, I fundamentally believe that I want Congress to make these decisions. And if Congress put that authority in under the Clean Air Act and EPA, then that's the, the entity that should make those decisions. And if EPA does not do so or has failed to do so, that doesn't give FERC the authority to fill the gap. All right, and one last question we have time for. Um, has FERC painted itself into a corner where the taxpayer should, would be justified in telling Congress to cut their budget and downsize the agency? Well, a lot of the agency budget comes from, uh, from filers, of course, for, Congress always has the authority to uh, to regulate its budget and it does provide authority for certain aspects of it. But I think the, the best thing to do is, you know, of course the power of the purse is extremely powerful, but I think, you know, the best thing to do is for Congress to make a decision or, or make its decision by not making a decision about what it, the authority of FERC is. And currently FERC's authority is defined by the current Natural Gas Act and its obligations under NEPA, and that's the extent of it. And until Congress expands its authority, 
uh, FERC should act, uh, should do what it's required to do under the act, but not do more. And I'll hand it back over to, as it can for any last words. No, I just uh, want to thank uh, Bernie again for uh, making your time available and um, providing the audience with uh, such a uh, thorough, substantive discussion of this uh, important topic. Well, thank you for having me and appreciate, appreciate spending time with all of you. And thank you both. On behalf of the Federalist Society, I want to thank Bernie and Ken for the benefit of their valuable time and expertise today. And I want to thank you, our audience, for joining us and participating. We welcome listener feedback by email at info at fed-soc.org. And as always, keep an eye on our website and your emails for announcements about upcoming webinars and other programming. Thank you all for joining us today. We are adjourned. Thank you for listening to this episode of Telefor, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.